You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today are Michael O'Brien, President, 1816 Public Affairs Group, and his were you Batman or was he Batman? Were you Robin? Was he Robin? I'm way taller than you. I was Will Ferrell. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's Shella's we'll first cover, question. We'll cover that. <laughs> no, you were Will Ferrell. He was I'm, Will Ferrell. Yeah. You were Cherry Terry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that. In case you haven't Sorry, figured Robert. it out, <laughs> Andy Miller, <laughs> managing principal of Bose Public Affairs Group, longtime friends. We're going to join today by Hall of Famer. Jim Shella, political reporter emeritus, Wish TV. He always joins us for these political ones. He makes it so much more fun. Great to thanks be here. Thanks, all of you, for being on today. You bet. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for, yeah, thanks for having us. It's great uh, to be here. You guys have been great about the podcast. I know, Michael, you came on once before when we were talking about Governor Holcomb's campaign in yeah. 2016, but... We've not yet had Andy Miller on, and so we're delighted that you gave us some time today. And with that, you are thrown to the wolves, <laughs> Mr. Shella. Well, this is this is called the Leaders and Legends podcast. And <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Robert does the booking, so I don't know if he considers you guys leaders or legends or both, maybe. But I consider you legends. For the Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry uh, <laughs> routine, for those who weren't there at, at the Indianapolis Press Club Gridiron Dinner, or maybe this was Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I think at that point it was, it was Fiscal it was, Policy Institute. Gridiron right. Dinner. Uh, you guys recreated the cheerleader sketch from Saturday Night Live uh, that that featured those two. And Andy did a, a, a brilliant job uh, in a wig and a skirt. 
Thank you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> In front of a thousand of our yeah, colleagues was, and clients. That was a really good time. It was a great event, fundraiser for a great organization. We had a lot of fun with that. How'd you get talked into that? Who came up with the idea? They had they had a committee that put together the run of show. Two of its members are here today. <laughs> 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 Both legends in their own right. Mike and Andy do. In that, in that, that year, they had an education theme. And I can't remember whose idea it was. It may have been Katzenberger's. I can't remember, but somebody said, gosh, it'd be great if you and Mike did he came something. Up, yeah, he called. He We ran into him. Is that what it was? And he yeah. hinted at it and goes, I'm going to ask you to do something, and you just got to say yes. And then you just walked away. Without <laughs> <laughs> any information. That'd be John Ketzenberger, who was then ex- executive director of the Fiscal Policy That's Institute. right. Yeah. But as, as I recall, you guys were so good at that, you got invited back the next year. We did. We yeah. did. Yeah, we got to do. We it weren't as good the second year, but yeah. it wasn't as good because I think that was the roast of Evan Bay year, which was hilarious. Because if there is anyone who has less a sense of humor about himself, it was Evan Bay. So I don't know who that <laughs> well, was, idea was. I don't, that. I don't think it was as good the second year because the first year we took this very seriously, Jim. We went and found our good friend Kim Dotson with oh, the Ark yeah. of Indiana, uh-huh. who had been a Purdue cheerleader, and we said, Kim, we need you to be our coach. All good cheerleaders have a trainer and a coach, and we spent. A considerable amount of time, maybe more than we should have during the legislative session over at the Ark of Indiana, practicing our routines, <laughs> writing scripts. Kim did all of that, got us into fighting shape and did all of that and really, we really um, phoned it in the second time. Yeah, the second time we phoned <laughs> it in. <laughs> well, I, I thought think, we had done something. I think it's worth discussion, discussing because you're two very serious gentlemen in, in very serious jobs, yet you're not afraid to, to entertain an audience. You're not afraid to make fun of yourselves. And, and I think that's an element that's important in politics. Personally. It reinforced what the gridiron is really about. Yeah, yeah that was about bringing all these people that are it, it, fighting in the sense that they're you're on opposite sides of a policy or politics, and that can get tense. It was a night to blow off steam. Like It was always in the second half of session, like two-thirds of the way in maybe, when yeah. mm-hmm. things are starting to get real and people are starting to win and lose. And it's starting to get a little at hot. Bose at the time? I think we were. Mm-hmm. Yes. We were, the first year, we were both here. And then I was at Barnes. The I think year. the second year, you were, it was when you had gone over to Barnes and Thornburg. Uh, I think for both of us, when you look at that and you look at some of the other um, fun that we've had together around the legislature it's there's it, for us it's there's a human element to all of this mm-hmm. that an event like that reminds everybody of this is a, this relationship is about relation or this business is about relationships right. and i always try to repeat the old madman line i don't know if anyone ever explained this to you but half of this business comes down to i don't like that guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's real like in that state house that is real it doesn't matter how much money's on the line or if you don't like the guy if you don't like the person you're working with or the one you're about to hand to win, it's probably not going to happen. Let's talk about someone who's beloved by all of us and I think did a lot to get you guys started and introduced, and that's Mr. Ed Tracy, oh, yeah. whom I don't mind saying I love dearly. How did you two meet Ed, and how instrumental was he to your careers, Andy? He, um, How did I meet Ed? I had moved to Indiana in July of 2000 to work for Speaker Greg in the House Caucus. And I was down in southern Indiana, and we'd kept the majority that year. And I didn't really have a plan for what I was going to do next in life. And I was sitting around the house of the member I had worked for, member of the Indiana House I had worked for. And I got a phone call from Ed Mahern, 
who said, hey, a good friend of mine's about to become Marion County Democratic Party chairman from Mayor Bart Peterson and Congresswoman Julia Carson, and he needs somebody that he can just give a bunch of work to, just mm-hmm. do whatever he needs. Would you be interested in that? Of course, I didn't have a plan or a job or income, so I said yes. <laughs> and I drove to Indianapolis, and I had lunch with Ed, and that's how I met Ed. Um, it was through it was through Ed Mayhern, and I look, Ed gave me my the start in my career certainly my start in lobbying and really mentored me through that whole process or at least the the first four years of my career before he retired and then certainly after and that that's how I got my start with Ed. Did you meet Joel Miller at the same time? I met Joel so Joel I met Joel it was you short were the nice guy and Joel was red yeah I met so Joel <laughs> So I, I was, I guess I'll just say it this way. So I was at a bar in Georgetown in June of 2000, had just graduated undergraduate, didn't have a job or a plan. And Joel and I were at a conference together and Joel asked me if I wanted to move to Indiana to work for John Gregg and the Indiana House Democrats that year. He was year. Speaker of the House? He was Speaker of the House. And that was the beginning of the evening. I said, there's no way I'm going to do that, but let's have dinner. And then by the end of the night, I said, sure, this sounds great. And the next day, I packed up everything I had in my car and drove to Indiana and lived at the St. John, in the rectory, old St. John's Church, Yeah. for the first week or so I was here, because they didn't really have a place for me, and I didn't have anywhere to go. Just sneak in the janitor's window, no, like they, Rudy or something? No. Or something. So I, my confession was to you? Maybe. Yeah, right. I lived there for a couple of weeks before I went down well, south. That's, a, that's, that's a separate podcast. That's, <laughs> what was included in Robert Bain's confession? That's, that's privileged. That's how, I, so that's how Joel factors in. And Joel was, the field, was John Gregg's field director that year. You grew, you grew up you in Maryland, is that right? I did, yeah. Okay, I went to Frostburg State. I did. You run into a lot of Frostburg alumni around here? You want, so, yeah, who is the other one? <laughs> there, there are two that yeah, I've run it, into it, since, in world, yeah. since moving to Indiana. Dave Frizzell, former state representative David Frizzell, God, went, I just saw went, he grew up in Baltimore and he went to Frostburg State University for a year or two and then he transferred, I think, to Loyola, Maryland. And then Joe Kernan's brother went, was a graduate. His brother Terry is a graduate of Frostburg State University and he and I discovered that, made that connection one summer during the Indiana Democratic Editorial Association event in French Lick, Indiana at the Derby Bar. We struck up a conversation <laughs> and we realized we had the same alma mater. I feel like we should be talking about Loftus and his Delaware mud hens or whatever the hell they're called. <laughs> blue hens. Yeah. Blue hens. The fighting blue hens. Mike, tell us about a little bit of how you met Ed and how you got started in this business. I got started the business. I was a Senate intern my junior year in college. I was, I'm from Illinois. I think one of the reasons Andy and I don't take ourselves too seriously is because we really have no business being here. <laughs> He's from Maryland. <laughs> I'm from Illinois, and here we are. But went and worked. graduated from college. I went back to Illinois and worked on a U.S. Senate campaign, and that was exactly the moment. It was like, it was like 2012 for Democrats in Indiana. It was like, oh, no, we're going to be the minority forever. Yeah. And I'm 22 years old with no Democrats now running everything. It's like, Illinois had had several Republican governors. I we think had a Republican I governor, Republican U.S. Senator, Republican Senate, state right. Senate. And that was the year it all flipped. And now, then Barack Obama was coming on the scene to run for the U.S. Senate in 04. So in 02, I decided to leave Illinois and come back, just try to get back into the state house where I'd done my internship while I was at IU. And wound up with a kind of an entry-level lobbying gig at the State Medical Association, which was great. Met Ed a little bit there. He represented the trial lawyers. He had a really good independent firm at that time. I don't think he had merged into Bose yet. Oh, 
What year would that have been? It was been like oh two. Yeah, he, he also was, had the chiropractors. He was, yeah, yeah, he was at Bose at that. point. Yeah, he created the. He had a great independent lobbying firm and then merged it with Bose. Yeah. Bose at the time, which was then it became Bose Tracy Associates. When Mitch got elected in 04, I went and worked for him for a couple of years. That's where Andy and I were buddies before that with a great... The guys I ran around with were all Democrats because governor's office was, was Democratic. The House was back and forth. The Senate wasn't what it is now, 40-10. Or, so it was a lot closer. When you control the governor's office, one thing that's now lost on Republicans, you, you, don't, you lose the governor's office. It's not like you're losing a U.S. Senate seat. It's like thousands of people have to go find out how to do something else. So, <laughs> so Democrats had the governor's office. And so all these young guys, when I came to town, like Andy and... Derek Sublett and Dax Denton and Ross Wells and all these guys were, who we're, we're still friends with to this day and in the business were the guys I hung out with. So it, when Mitch got elected, all that changed. Now all these, these guys, all these, my buddies are having to go figure out what to do next and what's life going to look like. But Andy was at Bose by then or had been at Bose then for a few years. And we worked together quite a bit in that first, those first two sessions when I was working for Governor Daniels, including on the Cold Steel and the Toll Road. That's right. Which is where we really got close because that was such a tough those were such tough issues. And at the end of that first two years, I was at a, I was at, why is everyone always meeting Ed Tracy where a lot of people are drinking? You were at a bar in Georgetown and I'm, I was at a house party on the east side. <laughs> that Ed, was Ed really doesn't drink. <laughs> and he pulled me aside and said, hey, I want you to come work for us at Bose. And, and that's where it started. And I came over to Bose Tracy later that year and spent about eight years at Bose. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast with Michael O'Brien and his good friend, Andy Miller, and our great friend, Jim Shella. Jim, you got another question? Go ahead. A couple of just uh, minor things. I, you guys both say you're in the in the public affairs business, but you're lobbyists. Um, obviously, you try to avoid that term, correct? Outside the industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when your name's on the building, yeah. <laughs> but... Mike, you're a Republican. Andy, you're a Democrat, and you talk about working together. Tell me how you work together. Right now, well, no, when you talk about sure. on this on the stadium or on the because you guys road. had a reputation sure. of being yeah. the R and D team that people wanted to talk to get things done because you got along so well and were so respected over in the state house. That was a terrific brand to have, especially back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, when it was closer. Yeah, and I yeah. think a big part of that is we both approach, and maybe we share we share a lot of the same mentors professionally in that respect, right? There's Ed Tracy, there's Dan Seitz, there's Paul Manweiler, who all worked at this firm, and then there are many other people that didn't work at the well, Bose Public Affairs Group sure. when Mike was with us, that didn't work at the firm that we both have had in the same orbit and, and received mentorship from. So we both think about, I, I think that's a long-winded way of saying, we both think about lobbying the same way, and we both approach it, you know, um, kind of a one vote at a time philosophy. And I think that was worked well for us because it's, um, you know, we, we, one knows what the other's thinking because of that. Yeah. We can't, we, we've just complimented each other. But that, that point about having similar mentors, we've worked for all the best people with or around some of the best people in that, in this industry in the last yeah. two or three decades. And that's been, a, I'm very grateful for that. How we actually work together. Like how do you work on a stadium deal together? So I work for, uh, Governor Daniels in 2006. Um, Andy's representing Ed Bowes, and the firm's representing the Colts. I, I believe that was your yeah, right. I think yeah. at the time it was the Indianapolis Colts. So we're trying, and that that stadium deal was functional. That had to go in statute. How it was going to be financed had to go in statute, right? So you're pat, you're working on legislation, but now you've got a political layer to that. So I'm with a Republican governor, but I'm inside state government, so I'm not really political. He just happens to be a Republican, right? But Bart Peterson was mayor. 
So you had a Democrat mayor that needed to talk to a Republican governor. And what people forget in lobbying, or what what doesn't make sense to people, I think, when, when you talk to them about what lobbying is and they don't know, is government has to lobby itself. So, like, the city's got to lobby the state and vice versa. And there's, there's a political element to that. And so you want a guy wearing your own jersey doing the talking to, to each other. And so, of course, the mayor and the governor are talking to each other. But in terms of what's happening on the ground, how are we, like, dot and I's and crossing T's on an actual piece of legislation and getting legislators to support it on both sides of the aisle? Mm. You got to, he's got to go manage the Marion County Democrat delegation. I got to manage the outstate Republican delegation that, does, that at the time doesn't really care. <laughs> isn't really all that interested in putting billions mm-hmm. of dollars into downtown Indianapolis. Especially because the taxes are going beyond Indianapolis. That's right. Or they're being pulled out of other counties and put into Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. And you're working on a stadium deal and you're a Bears fan. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome, Colton. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Have you gotten over that? (laughs) Not quite. Not yet. (laughs) Bears are coming to town in a couple weeks, though, to play the Colts. Joint practices. Did you have, Jim, did you have, we've had several... Government affairs experts on the Leaders and Legends podcast, Michael Connor and Ed Tracy, obviously. List goes on and on. Kip too. Have there were there lobbyists who you particularly respected? Were your sources or said, "Hey, take a look at this," and you were like, "Hey, I believe what this guy or gal has to say." They're in the room. I trust that this is good information. Here's my approach to covering politics and government in the state house. You have to know what's going on every issue of note, and you got to know who the players are. And the players are are often out in the hallway. If if you would follow me for a day in the state house when I wasn't, you know, covering floor debates or or sitting in committee meetings. I would go to the hallway and just start conversations with any and all lobbyists, Uh, get to know them, get to know what they're working on, get to know what their point of view is, who their client is. Um, And I can tell you, I had a competitor who thought that uh, lobbyists were somehow verboten in terms of a reporter source. And... I thought that, that worked out for you, didn't it? Oh, my goodness. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You get these utility lobbyists or agricultural lobbyists or healthcare. God, they know. I, I guess we should give a shout out to Lou Belch, right? Who the hell knows more about healthcare in Indiana than Lou Belch? Right. <laughs> Why wouldn't you talk to him? Sure. And they're like these guys. They're they're also involved in politics. They, they know what's going on behind the scenes uh, in terms of fundraising and, and, and things that you're not going to learn uh, at a news conference. And so I would spend every every idle moment talking to, to legislators of all stripes inside this world we all inhabit. There's no opportunity cost or or stigma for being a lobbyist is there outside when you tell someone what you do or have you ever in- had any encounters where someone oh yeah that's why most of my friends are lobbyists <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to explain yeah, right. <laughs> sure there is i think there i think what people don't what they don't like are axios had a well done article mm. a few weeks ago the golden fork award that they're starting the, the legislators that have been entertain the most by lobbyists that's the stuff the public hates or that you you know the people that aren't inside the bubble don't like from outside of it and i get that the reality the reality is your we have a once we have lobbyists in every state but in indiana it we're a little more we're a little deeper on policy i believe 
because we have a citizen part-time legislature. And so you've got a farmer coming off the field in mm-hmm. October, and now he's in the state house in January, and he's being asked to vote on health insurance policy. And it's like, good luck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good luck knowing what's right and what's not. So, I'm, And I think Andy and I work well together because we're both honest brokers. We're both going to go and tell the kind of, here's my side, and here's what mm-hmm. the other side of the coin looks like. And we respect and. What I think is really important, we can talk more about this, we came from the process and have a real deference to it. Yeah. Like, we really care that it's done the right way because we came out of it. We, and that, a lot of lobbyists are like that, the ones that started inside on staff mm-hmm. or sort of a Diane Masari was clerk of the house for years. Those There's a lot of us who, like, we really need this to work, like the government. Like, we understand our role in it. We understand where the line is. Mm-hmm. And when I'm done talking, it's your job to go legislator. You're the elected official. It's your. I'll say my piece, but yeah. you're pushing the button, so... Andy? Yeah, I think that's 100%. I love the process. It's part of what keeps me in this business and keeps me motivated. I love the legislative body. I I love state government. So I think Mike's 100% right about that. Your your question about, look, I had to explain to my mom and dad who were, my mother was a elementary school guidance counselor. My dad was a high school guidance counselor for 35 years in Baltimore County Public Schools. I had to explain to them I was going to be a lot, work at a lobbying firm in Indianapolis, Indiana, and try to explain to them what, and I think I still have to try to help my dad understand <laughs> exactly what it is I do. He's um, still trying to give you guidance. You, you know, well, so, I mean, so yeah, it is, it's not, maybe there's, 100, 150 people that do this in Indiana, day in and day out mm-hmm. at the state house. It's a very small population. And, and because of that, I just, it's not something that when you go to the Indeed website to apply for jobs, there is no click down for lobbyists. It's just not, it's not publicly facing in that way. One fun industry trick if someone looks cross eyed at you about being a lobbyist, ask them what they do for a living and then tell them who their lobbyist is. Right? <laughs> well, actually, or who there are tens of lobbyists are. Well, I used to tell, when I spoke spoke to groups when I was working um, before I retired, I would explain to them that everybody in Indianapolis probably got four or five lobbyists working down there. You got one from your profession, one from your church, mm-hmm. in yeah. all likelihood, one, one from the town you live in, and, and maybe f- somebody for the township, yeah. and somebody's looking out for your schools. Mm-hmm. The car you drive, the, the drink you drink, and there's, you've got lobbyists working for you you don't even know about. Mm-hmm. The e-cigarette you smoke. <laughs> <laughs> the bet you make. <laughs> you make. What platform you make it on. Yeah. How you make it. <laughs> you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise. And sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn. That's a great place. It is. And NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guests are Michael Bryan, Andy Miller, and our frequent co-host, Jim Shella. Is there one particular battle that you two remember, same side, opposite side, that stands out in in your career? This was just an absolute war. Because I know Jim has covered it. There have been so many. Yeah, there's been a lot. Gosh, there's been uh, so many, and so many together, Yeah, and a few on the other side of each other. I remember one, there was one moment during this whole road debate. It was, last, it was the last day of session. This would have been the original legislation. The original right? legislation, 2006. Yeah. So I work for Governor Daniels, and uh, you were representing the, the concessionaire, yep. the toll road, co- the company that was trying to lease the toll road, or that would have leased the toll road if this legislation passed, mm. uh, and did. 
uh, when it ultimately passed. But at that time, it was 52-48. Republicans were in control of the House. But what's lost to a lot of people, especially legislators, is the, the fine art of the walkout. Mm-hmm. Uh, which shuts down the supermajorities matter because Democrats can't or the minority it's, Republicans did it too back when Democrats were in control uh, would walk out and, and stop that stops business you can't you need well, to is that the year we had the first the Bauer walkout where he killed that was no that was Mitch's first that was session. 05 that so was that 05 that, five. that was, ha- was halftime at right. 05 when he killed the whole yeah, agenda so that had already happened <laughs> yeah <laughs> when Mitch went before the cameras the next day and said he carbon our, our, our agenda and then yeah. had to issue an apology now, lost for that history is, and Shella shows up lost, at the Indiana lost, lost to history is there was a path for Bauer to come back and we were like I think it's better for us politically if we let him kill it <laughs> and it was we got it all back and it all passed but the, to the the memorable moment I'm thinking of was the following session during the uh, toll road fight i was on the floor of the house because i could be as a employee of the governor mm-hmm. and employee of the state because the house allowed that lobbyists of course can't be except for this one situation where i turned around and andy's standing in the aisle the democrats walk out really sure to kill the toll the road <laughs> i'm like how'd you get in here I'm like, I'm like go, go get them back I, go downstairs and- I think you were a little more stern than that mike i think yeah. you looked at me and you said Find out what they want and get them back. <laughs> I went down expecting uh, Governor Daniels to be pretty worked up, and he was pretty calm. He, he and Becky Skillman, and Lieutenant Governor, were sitting in the office, and, and I said, like, oh, he did it again. Bauer <laughs> walked out. He goes, all right, keep me posted. We'll see what we can do. And I remember Jim came because you interviewed Murray Clark. I was comms director at State Party, Republican Party. You interviewed Murray about the comment. and Murray's sounds good to me. Like we weren't, we were the ones that were supposed to reinforce no matter what the governor did, the political side of it. And I don't know, I guess you could say in six, it worked out for the D's cause they won the house that year. That was a good year for the Democrats. Things have been thin since a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you think that's the biggest war? Freedom Over. Indiana was a real memorable one. Yeah, I was, we you and I worked. We were both yeah. at, both at Bose at, at the time. Uh, and that, that was a big coalition. That was a lot of um, what, the core of that coalition were um, was Megan Robertson and that Freedom Indiana right. core mm-hmm. group. You're talking about gay rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We so the, the yeah. So the issue was we had to amend. The, the, so to amend the Indiana Constitution, you have got to pass the same language in two consecutive general assemblies, right? Separately elected general assemblies. So you can only do it by every four the whole process is about four years and so we're in the second half of the process where we already the legislature already passed one amendment constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage if they pass this one it's going mm-hmm. to the ballot so the task was to get it amended so it was different when it passed so then that resets the process and that was the goal so we are, the, mm-hmm. the, the the focal point of that was 2014 yeah it was, yeah, it was 2014 2015 was rifra mm-hmm. yes and then 2016 was when all hell broke loose and we were fighting bathroom bills and all, all, like this new social, like that was the period Then the Supreme Court came in and legalized gay marriage and that kind of kicked off the, but we were successful in the sense that we were able to stop a ban on gay marriage in the, from being a, uh, put on the ballot in Indiana to be put in the Constitution, prevented for a minute, we didn't know that at the time, prevented that kind of social war on the ballot. Do those stand out to you, Jim? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The the battle for the ability for gay folks to get married in Indiana, I think, was because it took so many different variations. There were so many different elements to that over such a long time. It's maybe the most significant thing I covered. Uh, hmm. A lot of stars aligned there. It was about the time when moderate Republicans were starting to shift on it. It, it didn't look as risky 
in 2014 to be well, on that side of the issue. Not to mention moderate Democrats. I think J- right. you know, John Gregg right. was opposed to gay marriage at one point. And uh, mm-hmm. we're only two years from Barack Obama supported. Right. So to get that That's done on right. the floor of the House was pretty uh, mm-hmm. You guys pretty have amazing. worked with multiple governors, multiple speakers, and House, or excuse me, Senate majority leaders. Any good stories? Any ones you want to tell? Yes. Any Anybody <laughs> more fun to work with than others? We've had... We have not had any Senate presidents on, Jim, but we've had Todd Houston and Brian Bosman. There haven't been Gray. very many Senate presidents. We're only on our third one in 40 <laughs> yeah, years, like 45 40 years. years. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Gosh, there have been so many, so many great people to work with over there. I can't, I guess I have to answer that question. Uh, and Mike's talked about the stadium legislation. He's talked about the toll road legislation and my working relationship with leader and speaker Bauer on and off leader and speaker Bauer over that period of time. There are a lot of memorable stories, Robert. I don't know how many of them I'll get into today, (laughs) but there are so many memorable stories. And, 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 and around the same time, David Long, when he was pro tem of the president pro tem of the Senate, I, one of the one of my longest standing clients has been the city of Fort Wayne. And there's just was so many fun pieces of legislation um, that I've had the opportunity to work on through that engagement and to work with him when he was pro tem of the Senate. You don't have to divulge any stories. But let's talk about Pat Bauer a little bit. Sure. I don't know him. Sat next to him at mass at St. John's because he used to go all the time. He was a, he was certainly it seemed to, he seemed to be the perfect foil for Mitch Daniels. We've never done it this way before, sort of thing. But he also seemed to be a really smart politician. Mm -hmm. How did he, how was it for, let's say, Pat Bauer, who was not Speaker of the House when Mitch Daniels won the first time, Bosma was, and then Bauer became Speaker after 2006 election. They flipped it after you guys flipped it. What was it like to work for? What, what was that battle like between? Well, I never worked for. I never worked for the speaker. But work with, work alongside. Yeah. Where, where politically you're aligned, no matter what's happening. Yeah, the thing about uh, a brilliant tactician in the within the process, probably, I would say nobody understands or understood maybe to this day the legislative process like but the the irony there is he was a brilliant tactician but what he's remembered most for is the walk out to illinois that backfired sure Mm -hmm. that's right absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah and that was he got the majority back in the 06 election so seven was the first year back in, in the majority and i think that looked very different than the first two years of the daniels administration the fights were still there but it was the second it was going into the second the reelect of Daniels in the second term. Mm-hmm. And it almost felt like the relationship that time, at least from what I can remember being around, was a little more pragmatic. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was still political high drama, but things got done. Yeah. When you talk about the walkouts that, uh, to Illinois, that was after that was after the 2010 midterm. And then the 2012 presidential, when the Democrats, the majorities prior to that for the la- for the previous 20 years, one or two, yeah, one or, or two, two or three, or it was relatively narrow. Um, that was a 10 seat and then a 20 seat majority, and right. that felt very different, well, I think. And that was an effort to stop the right to work legislation, which mm-hmm. eventually became law. the The story uh, that I enjoy most about Pat Bauer that I think gives you insight into his. Uh, personality was one that was told to me by uh, Chet Dobas, who was a longtime Democratic legislator. And late in his career, Chet had an employment opportunity out of state. 
And so he got in the car and he drove to South Bend. This was off session. Drove to South Bend, have a meeting with Pat and said, if this comes through, I'm going to give up my seat. And Bauer looked at him and said, how can you do that? And Chet said, they're not going to carry me out of that place. And Bauer said, well, they are me. <laughs> <laughs> that was real. There were Democrats, especially after 2008. When it all started turning, there were Democrats in parts. Your first boss. Yeah, Bob Bischoff. Bob Bischoff yeah. was one of them, and Russ Stilwell, and all those Southern Indiana Democrats. Like those, They were not electing another Democrat. That's they were right. either electing Russ Stilwell or a Republican. That's right. Or in some um, cases, so that was a big a deal for Bauer back then, because he yeah. couldn't have any of these guys. Don't have, I don't care how old and sick right. you are. I mean, we had the, 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 first, the first Zoom video vote in Indiana history was... Tom Krakowski. No, Tom Krakowski, Krakowski yeah. yeah. <laughs> from his hospital bed. And, Although it didn't count. <laughs> <laughs> Bauer did his best. Mike, yeah. who did theater. you enjoy? Like, for example, I'll just throw a name out there. He was on the podcast. I hear a lot of people at the time especially, say strong things about Brian Bosma's job as speaker, his performance. I know he works with you a little bit, but he seemed to me to be just the perfect person for that gig at that time. Yeah, in 05, 06, he, had become, he was minority leader, and then House we win the majority, very thin majority, 52 seats in, in 2004 election. So 05, 06, he's speaker, and then he, and then he um, does some hard things. Daylight saving time, leases the toll road, you name it, blow, shutting down, you know, the governor shutting down BMV branches and, and, <laughs> and Mitch's that approval ratings in the toilet in the 30s, right? They, everyone thinks about Mitch Daniels remembers like 2011, the good times. Yeah. It was all good. It was all productive. But the I remember politically you being in my popular time for the end. going, I just don't know if we can pull this no. through. And uh, he does all these hard things, right? And, and turns this really thin margin into some big wins for Governor Daniels and through the legislature. And then is rewarded for it by becoming minority leader again <laughs> in the 2006 election. And it has to sit in that position for four years, right? We don't. Barack Obama wins Indiana in 08 and the presidency. We don't win the majority. Mitch wins by 20. We don't win the majority, though, back in the House. In 10, the Tea Party year brings it back. 64, huge win. 60 yep. 40. 14 is another huge. 12 was another huge one. That was after the walkout, and that's when we got the super majorities and haven't given them back yet. But I think the unique thing about Speaker Bosma is that he created that and that he re he recruited those candidates. He ran their campaigns. Mm -hmm. He went and that he won those campaigns and created a great political operation around it. And so when his majority coming back in 10 was different than the majority he had in 05, which he which was a caucus he largely inherited from the 80s and 90s. So those guys win there, Paul Manweiler and the other the other leaders of that caucus. By that election in 10, he created that majority and then created the supermajority and held it. And that caucus knew it. So he could swing a pretty big stick in that caucus because they, a lot of them were, would look at him and say, he's the reason I'm there. I got to do it. Whatever I'm being asked to do, I got to do. <laughs> yeah, and it sustained him for a long time. It did. Yeah. It did. I mean, that. I, th I think Mike's 100% right on that. Was it, do you get the sense that these leaders understand, I'm going to say how the game works, and that's a poor way of phrasing it, but a Republican Speaker of the House knows you're a Democrat, but it's, look, I don't care. You're good at your job. A Democrat Speaker of the House knows Mike's really good at his job. Okay, he's a Republican. Does that stuff matter that much, those party labels inside the State House? Depends how you do it. Yeah, it, depends. it depends how you conduct yourself yeah. partisan, really. Yeah, it does. I think if you're asking leaders that we've worked with, I think Mike and I would both say that Leader Giaquinta 
for both of us has mm-hmm. been a great friend Absolutely. to work with over the years at the, at the legislature and uh, whether he's for us or against us on our particular issue and, and and you look at the position he's been in and trying to rebuild the majority but when it comes down to working on an issue that's important to the state of indiana or one of our clients that's important to the state of indiana uh, i don't think that partisan label matters as much but i do think it has a lot to do with how you do it mm-hmm. it does yeah and i do think if you're one it just it's not common for lobbyists to be openly partisan we were just going to have a hard time putting all that back in the box after you worked for the House Democrats and I worked for a Republican governor. Yeah. And I was a Republican county chairman for eight years and on state committee. I ran the governor's campaign in six. I'm like, I'm not hiding what I'm doing out in the world. Or <laughs> <laughs> when I go to the ballot box, what button I'm pushing. So you've got to embrace that and do it the right, do it the right way and understand where, where the lines are. It's Phil G. Yeah. Is like a friend, like an actual yeah. like friend, right? That, that someone we can deal with. But I will say it does help. You've got to be a trusted advisor as a lobbyist. You've got to know your stuff and know your issues. Yep. You do get a, a bump by them also knowing, hey, this guy's also for me being here. Like right. he, he, like Mike wants us in the majority. Um, he's not just trying to get his. He's not just here to cash his check today. He's actually he's doing other stuff. And I think that does make a that does enhance your relationship and give you some insight you might not otherwise have. Well, I think it's also like I think about for example, uh, uh, Jeff Espick who certainly knew I was a Democrat, certainly knew my political life, my early political life. And, but I was able to go in and meet with him. And I knew when I was going in to meet with, with Representative Espick, I knew I had to have my facts straight. I knew I needed to be prepared because he was the kind of legislator when he would review a piece of legislation, if there was a comma, that didn't make sense. He was, of, he was chair of House, of we- House Ways and Means. Mm-hmm. He was going to question you about it, and you better understand why it's written that way. And if you don't, you're not going to you're not going to you're not going to earn his support or certainly his trust. And I think that's a big part of it. Is in this this is one of the great things Dan Seitz always used to instill in me is you have to know your issues. Politics are important. Relationships are important. But you have to know your issues, and it's not just on the surface. You have to read the bill. You have to. I you can remember Dan teaching me how to mark up a bill and how to really go through a bill section by section and understand what it meant and how the different parts of it work together. And I can remember Dan lecturing me. This is what you have to know when you go in to meet with a chairman, Espick. And that's where you earn some of that. That's where you. That's how you that, get beyond. That's the how label. you get beyond the partisanship. Yeah, that's right. I want to ask Mike about Indiana Week in Review, because years ago I asked you to to fill in on occasion. And you just talked about keeping your politics and, and, and your lobbying separate to a degree. But on Indiana Week in Review, you're the party spokesperson. And after I retired, you became the regular uh, Republican panelist. Is that a difficult position to be in? Uh, that's something, yeah, so th- there's a couple layers you got to work through. Sometimes the, re- the reason I like Indiana Week in Review is it's largely statehouse focused, right? So it's issues I'm around all the time anyway, people I'm around, and perspectives I'm picking up. I, I don't have to go study a lot to be on Week in Review on a Friday. But so sometimes I'm balancing, oh, my, cl- I've got a client in that. My client watches this, sh- this show. I've got, <laughs> and, I, and I try when it's overt, when I'm overtly involved in something, I've, I always disclose that. But I, I will say on the Republican side, being a Republican spokesman isn't what it was 20 years ago when the White House would hand off talking points to the RNC, would hand them off to the state parties, it would distribute them to the county parties, and that's what everyone's saying this weekend. Yeah, There are no two Republicans you can put in a room on most of what we're dealing with that agree on anything. So the freedom in that in the modern 
in the current times is I get to go on and say where I think that we're doing we're doing the right thing, and I say we're not. And I'm catching one way or the other. I'm probably catching forty percent of the crowd. for what it's worth, that's way. No, that's why I liked having you on because I wasn't getting talking points. I was getting honest feelings and emotions. Yeah, and I've, we've been through it. We just talked. Mm. That's these transactional wins for Governor Daniels or Speaker Bowser that we talked about. It's a good. It's a good. It's good to understand. We did that, and we got here. How do we? There's not a lot of memory in that state house anymore about why do we have supermajority Republicans. There were a lot of trans specific things. The walkout, to Illinois, mm-hmm. specific things that happened. Lose the majority in 06 That that happened. That put us in the where we are right now. And, that, and there's not a long memory on that uh, for a lot of people. So I think I hope what I bring to that is also a little historical perspective. And hey, I know why we're doing this because there's what we did before, and we're mm-hmm. building on that. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests are Michael Bryan, Andy Miller, co-host Mr. Jim Shella. I hear this a lot, and I don't know whether you will agree based on your party affiliations, but I'll say something, and you can just say whether you agree. Fair, Andy? Maybe. Supermajorities are bad. I agree with that. Mike? I think they've become bad. Early on, the supermajorities delivered right to work. They delivered like big things, like mm-hmm. big ticket items for Republicans. Back in the day, I mean, if you had 52 seats in majority, you got four Republicans sitting in Lake County are voting for right to work. Get out of here. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Uh, but so I think the supermajorities have created the lack of competition has created this sense in the statehouse that there's really nothing we can't do. Which has turned into there's really nothing we shouldn't do, right? Yeah. I, I, my, my problem my with for it, you, Jim, is hey, I was going to ask you: Are supermajorities fun? No, and they're not good. I don't think the, the biggest problem I have with supermajorities is that all the meaningful debate takes place in caucus in private. My experience has been that that the Republican supermajorities go away for long caucus meetings. And everybody gets their emotion out, gets their, gets their arguments out, and they come back, and there's hardly any floor debate. And so if you're trying to clue the, the public in on what, what the discussion is here, there's no discussion. Andy, when's the last time you did the, for your, in, in your role right now, in our roles, when's the last time you did an actual floor count? A hard, I need to know if I've got 51 votes kind of floor no, count. I did a couple last session. It's, we used to do them all the time. We used to do them all the time. Because we had to. We didn't know. Yeah. They'd walk out of caucus and... We'd have to, we, we were constantly pulling people off the floor. And you come out of caucus anymore, you need people in that room advocating for whatever you're working on. I, I guess I, I'll say well, this. Do you, do it's the, changed the way you lobby. Um, but hasn't technology has changed the way caucuses? People are texting you from caucus now, right? That's changed quite a bit. There's, the, the, look, the, the information f- flows through the state house. When I think about the first session I lobbied, 2001, and I think about 2023, what's the biggest difference? The biggest difference is in the supermajorities or even the political environment. Things were contentious then. I can remember the, the Governor O'Bannon's budget in 01 having trouble getting out of the House because of dockside gaming and the governor's office working hard to whip votes on dockside. And I, I was really close to that because Bob Bischoff was one of the one of the holdouts. He did not want to vote for dockside gaming. Uh, at the time. And I remember that was a big deal. And I remember long caucuses in those days where deals were cut between leaders. I, I, if I think about what's really different, it's the way information flows from the building. You, you used to be able to have a meeting with somebody and maybe 
somebody nobody would ever find out about it. You have a meeting with somebody today, and and everybody knows about it. You a deal gets uh, there's an agreement on a piece of legislation, and it's presented in caucus. It's out, and as lobbyists, it's, we have to keep up with all of that because a lot of times information gets back to our clients before sometimes right. before we know it. But as leaders, I, I I think about leaders of the four caucuses today to to manage that. It's almost hard. unmanageable. Yeah, it it's really hard, and I think that's the biggest difference in the building today from twenty years ago. I will say, texting became, <laughs> you don't think anything about sending a text now, and you have no. it for a very long time, but it used to be when texting was first a thing, it was, you had to have a relation, a texting relationship. That's right. You couldn't just fire a text <laughs> off to somebody, you had to know them. And Pat Bauer, to punish lobbyists for some, oh, he was tired of guys leaving the floor, not 0809, right. he was tired of his members leaving the floor. Yeah, I The way we that. used to do it is, we'd scratch a note on a little piece of paper, a doorman would take it into an intern, would bring it to the legislator, then that legislator would come out knowing what, who I am and what I want to talk about, and we'd have a conversation, they'd go back in. There was one, one period, one 24-hour, 40-hour yeah, period, this. Bauer just got so mad that his members were leaving the floor because they're trying to vote, but they don't have the votes if they're out in the hallway. <laughs> and so, they, so he took the notes off the desks. That didn't stop the lobbyists from communicating with the legislators. We just started texting, and we never looked back. The notes, never got the, <laughs> the notes have never been the same since. Jim, what would be your answer to that? You've been around Andy's 2001 to 23. I know you retired seven years ago. But what was like the big, where you walked in or you walked out of the state house one day and was like, man, things are different? Technology has changed everything, and technology affected the way we reported on it. When I first started covering the legislature, it would be 1983, we, we would never go live from inside the state house unless it was a special occasion and we brought down a truck and ran a whole bunch of cable. And by the end, we had a transmitter in the dome and cables run down to the fourth floor and we could go live at a moment's notice. We could even go live from our basement if necessary. We, we would feed video back from our basement office. And then you get phones and you can actually transmit things over the phone. Everything is instantaneous now where it, it used to be you needed things to happen by four o'clock so you could go back to the station and sort through it and write a story. Was the legislature aware that's what you needed? Did they I think tailor so. what they were doing because they wanted to hit the news? Oh, oh yeah. Yes. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I the, the, absolutely. And we were talking about the first vote to legalize gay marriage in Indiana happened at six o'clock. Yeah. You think that was an accident? <laughs> <laughs> or cor quorum call. The thing I remember, Jim, is quorum calls. On walkouts in the early days, quorum calls would have, they would be strategically targeted for five o'clock. So you guys could go live from the balcony while half, a the, rooms half the rooms empty while a quorum calls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, there was never any coordination between leadership and the media, but everybody understood well, me, what media was going office on. Is new. They're going live at five. The news right. starts at five. It might as well be us with a half empty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. We talked about mentors. We got a few minutes left before we get to the five questions. Andy has to do the five questions. Well, you can do it too, even though you did a couple of years ago. Your answers may have yeah, changed. That's right. <laughs> My first job, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Your first concert. Yeah. Who are some folks in your business you admire? Could mm. still be working today. Not mentors. No offense to the generation before that we've already talked about them a little bit. But Andy and Mike, who are like, man, he or she is really good at what they do. Yeah, I admire so many of our colleagues over there. I've talked about, I feel like I've been blessed because I've had so many people invest time in me for mentorship. And I've talked about, all of them are retired now, but Ed Tracy and Dan Seitz and Paul Manweiler of current lobbyists. I think of Joe Loftus 
is somebody that's played a pretty big role in my career, taught me a lot of lessons over the years, somebody that I admire that's doing this. And then I, I admire Mike. I admire what he's done both as a lobbyist in practice, as a practitioner of the craft, but also the, the entity that he's built on his own. I look at, I, I think about Matt Bell and some of these folks that have built firms from nothing. And I admire that kind of that kind of entrepreneurship. But there are so many I could sit here all day and probably talk about go through the lobbyist Rolodex and sure. say something about everybody. We um, just had Lisa Dietrich and I Diane. admire both of them very much. Um, Sorry, you talk about them for just a minute. You've known them for decades. I did. Lisa and I. So I first met Diane when she was working for Speaker Greg at the time. And then, uh, of course, when she was clerk. And Diane is just she's she has been she's a presence that's always there. And you just know that she's there. And I've had a couple major events in my life, both professionally and personally. And I can tell you on those two or three occasions, easily one of the first phone calls I've gotten was from the Diane Masario. And sometimes it was just a call to say, hey, but I heard you were going through this. And mm-hmm. I just want you to know I'm thinking about you. And that's that's just Diane. I think that's wonderful. I talk. I often talk about the human element of politics and the legislature that sometimes gets lost. And I feel like Diane always grounds us in that. And Lisa Dietrich, I, I Lisa and I have the same mentor. Lisa started off working mm-hmm. for Ed Tracy and we've Left had Hudnut. It, we we've did, had Did she not leave Hudnut's office or was there a Republican mayor Hudnut? I don't know if there was an interim, but she went from Hudnut to Tracy. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. She, Sorry, yeah, Andy. She's Lisa understood what it meant to work for Ed Tracy, if I could say it that way for a moment. <laughs> Ed was a little bit like a drill instructor with me, and Lisa had been through Ed Tracy's training on lobbying. <laughs> so, you know, I think about Lisa and Chip Garver. They all, they all got their start working for Ed, and those two individuals in particular knew what it meant to work for Ed. So early in my career, every now and then Lisa would check in on me. <laughs> <laughs> Mike? Um, it's two. Th- it's one. It's well said about both Lisa and and uh, Diane, who's um, the state house's mom. Um, and really, <laughs> and everyone has the same. What Andy just described with Diane, everyone's got that exact same story about her. There's no, that does not deviate from person to person. That's just who she is. You know, on the political side, I I, I think often about the, how I got to work for Governor Daniels when I was 24, 25, 26 years old. That's just like at. at Day one in the governor's office, which where I had no business being, but it's just but by grace of God, a lot of people vouching for me. I got to be there. And because of that, you get to sit shotgun with a lot of great people. Eric Holcomb being one of them, who I you know shared an office with in that office. And years mm-hmm. later, ran the campaign in 16 in that chaotic 2016 year. Got a, a lot of confidence that, in you that he would choose you for that. We thought a lot of, and just had a great 15 years of uh, of working together. But I also considered him a mentor because he was years ahead of me and had a lot more experience. On the lobbying side, it's the people that Andy already mentioned. When I left Bose and went to Barnes and Thornburg, I got to work. One of the reasons I wanted to go there is because of Bob Grand's presence in national politics. I wanted to go just be a fly in the wall for that experience. And Brian Burdick and Joel Loftus on the lobbying side, legendary lobbyist. Heather Willie. Heather, good friend. And, yeah. So we've had the. And people that, Pat Kiley, mm-hmm. John Hamm, That's right. guys that 20 years ago when I was first starting, and I know Andy does this too, very grateful that they were willing to take a coffee or, or give their, have a lunch or, or give their perspective. And that's why I know you do it. And I, I, there's not a coffee request or a, hey, how'd you get to where you are from an intern that 
opportunity to visit with them or go talk to a Indiana leadership class or any of that to go That's talk right. to young people. And, I, I, and help, I haven't help had this conversation though without mentioning Kipper V two. <laughs> Where the hell would Kip you all too. be without? <laughs> we all without love Kip. <laughs> well, and I don't. I, I guess I don't want the moment to pass without saying his name because I do think of him often as Mark Cahoon who was uh, a career lobbyist for the Indiana Manufacturers Association. Worked Mark, for Pat Kiley? Yeah, Mark passed, yes, worked for Pat Kiley. Mark passed away about 10 years ago, and Mark had a huge impact on me. As he, he was, I can remember showing up at the State House not knowing what I was doing, and Mark <laughs> seeing that, and Mark just saying, hey, who are you? Where'd you come from? Let's go to lunch, and it just took off from there. Freddie Garber was one of those guys. There's, you're right, we could sit here all day and talk about, they're, they're not... Uh, there's not hundreds of great people, but there are, there are 20 yeah. over the years that are just <laughs> they're either characters they're either they check both boxes like an Ed Tracy where they're just like one of a kind characters and also great. <laughs> but they do. Yeah. Um, last question before we get to the five questions. Uh, you both have run campaigns. The Republicans are in the ascendant statewide. We'll stay statewide, perhaps, or maybe we can interject Indianapolis since we're coming up on a mayor's race a deep understanding of politics, what it takes to win. Mike and I on our bike rides talk about this quite a bit, but Mike, A, what would, how are the Republicans going to preserve this era of good feeling we have? And B, how can the Democrats come back? You get the same question, Andy, but just in a different order. Hmm. I've had this conversation with people who ask, mostly on Week in Review when they what we're musing about whether Diego's going to win or, and what I've tried to com- draw a comparison that is common in political circles about banging on Illinois. It's like a sport over there to talk about what, how bad Illinois is. <laughs> but on the political side, actually from your question about how did the Democrats come back? I think it, it's almost, gen- it's like generational. How we got here is from the civil war to 2008, there were Democrats south of the U S 40, or voters of South U.S. 40 that voted Democrat. And after 08, they said, I'm a Republican. And that is what has changed how we elect Republicans statewide. It used to be run up the score in the suburban donuts, and we can lose south of 40. That's, that's how Mitch won. That was, the, that was the game plan. And that's all changed now. It's these outstate voters that were conservative Democrats for years. I say that because it's instructive to say, okay, well, that's 130 years. Like when you have these monumental shifts in party identity and generational identity and that is tracking what happens at the national level right we're not we're not in this environment nationally where we have these blended states maybe you've got a florida pencil you're we're elected presidents of six counties in the country right so (laughs) so how we're but but that there are a lot of factors that feed into that the fact that you've got suburban louisville spreading into southern indiana and suburban cincinnati it's these are suburban voters where there used to be rural voters and national politics are are impacting these races more than they they ever have i think you can still you can't really separate a u.s senate race anymore from the national environment in a state like indiana it's really hard for a democrat to come in and differentiate themselves from whatever chuck Schumer was talking about you can still do that in a governor's race i, I still do believe that if you have a good because i think voters in indiana still think about that race differently mm-hmm. let's give andy a few more minutes to think jim what would be your <laughs> prescription for the Democrats. And we're not well, banging on them. It's just they, even the they, last 16 years, it's been the Democrats. When I first got started in politics, the late 90s, mayor of Indianapolis, attorney general, 
one Senate seat, House majority. I think they even may have had well, a majority. Well, of we had just Congress gotten the mayor's office. But though, in the mid 80s, the Democrats were in almost as bad a shape as they are now. And Evan Bayh came along and he almost single handedly changed their fortunes. Mm-hmm. He and, and the people who came with him, Joe Hogsett and Jeff Modisett. Mm-hmm. First of all, Bart Peterson. Yeah, I think you, you need. Uh, a leader you, you you need and or leaders um the other way they can come back if you look to to indiana history the other time their fortunes changed dramatically was after watergate and uh, i think uh, donald trump has the ability to help democrats out uh, a great deal here and elsewhere Clearly, I should have asked what the questions were before we did this. <laughs> Either that or you or Spangle, somebody forgot to send them to me. Um, I just came up with this, this question. Is, this is really... You're in a situation where you know and have worked with the top Democratic leaders yeah, for the I, past 20 years. You know what leadership looks like. You know what state politics is like. I, yeah, I think, Robert, I mean, I just had a conversation earlier this week with was part of a group that talked about the birth and rebirth of political parties over the last since the, the Civil War. I, for the Democratic Party, I think nationally and I think in a lot of ways we're, we are we are figuring out this who we are in this new realignment that Mike talked about. And Mike's right. I remember when I the year I worked for the House caucus, I lived in southern Indiana, worked for Bob Bischoff that year, state representative Bob Bischoff. I can remember half the Democratic caucus being endorsed by the NRA, having having an endorsement from Indiana Right to Life, mm-hmm. and having a worse voting score from the ACLU or Indiana Civil Liberties Union than the Republicans. <laughs> and it would look totally different today, right? It does look totally different today. Things have really changed over the last 25 years. So I think in a lot of ways, the Democratic Party, both statewide and even locally, is trying to figure out where it goes from here in this new with this new coalition the new fusing of forces on our side of the on the democratic side of politics i think jim's partially right i think it takes a leader i think it takes a uniter to bring everybody together um, it can also take a cause it can also take a major issue i don't i don't know what that would be today um but i do think there is something to this changing change in central indiana that's taking place and i I think it's more than central indiana i think i'll just call it an urban and suburban indiana if you think of the coalition that mike talked about south of 40 was a it was a rural labor coalition um, that was aligned with the indiana black legislative caucus that made up the majority the 53 seat majority Mm -hmm. uh, in those days um so i think we're talking about an urban suburban um, coalition and how that works together and what that looks like and uh, we're gonna we're gonna see around central Indiana what how democratic the collar counties around Marion County have become and for the Republican Party I think there are just as many challenges today I know it's an era of good feeling on the state level but there are divisions that you all are wrestling with it's evident it shows itself it manifests itself in the Republican presidential primary. And I think it's because both parties are going through this period of, okay, who our base is and who what, who our co- governing coalitions are. That, that looks different than it has for a really long time. You have a situation where Donald and, Trump and, and wins got, Hamilton County well, but loses Carmel. And you've also got generational change across the country. There are leaders in Congress and in state legislators that are retiring that have led the legislatures and led com. I mean, you think about the Hoyer-Pelosi 
step back last year. That's happening across the country at the state level as well. So there's a generational transition. And what's important to the generation that's coming up and what they think about some of these longstanding political divides is very different within both parties. You second, Mr. Miller? Absolutely. Richard Nixon's rolling over in his grave. Nixon never resigns if he does if he does what he did in this environment. <laughs> yeah. Where, yeah, it's a it's hard to figure out what the future looks like in the Republican Party at the national level. And that's and again, I've, what I said before, that it's really hard to separate these Indiana Republican races from the national environment. It is. It's hard to message differently without, especially in a primary, because governor's race is going to be really interesting to right. see how you're navigating an indictment a day from Donald Trump when you still when each indi- he gets an indictment bump every time and you're trying to figure out how to like, how do I. The messaging strategy. How do I not be on the wrong side? I don't not be on the wrong side of this. If you wind up in prison, and all the and half of the voters in the country, or half the seventy five percent of the voters in the Republican Party, go, "Man, that was messed up." Let's move on to the next thing because that's about how it. <laughs> here you are holding your holding the bag. <laughs> yeah. We've reached the point. Do you want to say anything more, Jim? I, I don't think uh, that was a nice exclamation point right there. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests: Michael, Brian, and Andy Miller. Are you ready? Yes. Yes. Mike, what was your first job? I worked at a, I'm from the south side of Chicago. I worked at a one screen B run movie theater in Dalton, Illinois. And sometimes when I say, when people ask me that, I said, I worked at the Dalton theater. They hear I worked at the adult theater. (laughs) I worked in the village of Dalton, Illinois. I worked at the movie theater. (laughs) I knew I'd met you a long time ago. (laughs) Andy, you? I worked for uh, recreation and parks in Baltimore County, Maryland at a park. It's called Oregon Ridge Park, and I cleaned bathrooms and emptied garbage cans every day. Andy, what was your first concert? <laughs> My first paying concert, because that, 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 that park has a concert venue it's the summer home of the baltimore symphony and that would have technically been my first concert my first paying concert where i paid and bought a ticket was to a band that nobody in this room's heard of it's a local band called crushing day that plays around the baltimore area and they had there was a a bar in padonia station in in baltimore county where they were playing a teen night or something like that it was an (laughs) under 21 night and i bought a ticket and went to that that was my first concert experience was your first concert where anyone would have heard of them oh gosh i think i went to to a George Clinton concert was maybe my first concert. <laughs> oh, man, he's Art coming to town. Monk. He's coming to town. Rock the ruins. <laughs> is oh, he really? Yeah. You know what? Is I think he? I saw that. Jim. I got yeah. tickets. I got tickets. <laughs> Mike, your first concert. It was like quintessential Chicago. It was like Pearl Jam at the United Center. Like Nineteen ninety four. Mike, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Ebb and flow on books. I was actually going to read one this week just to have an answer for you since I haven't read one in a minute. But I do read a lot of long-form journalism. I like The Atlantic and Political Magazine and New Yorker, and there's a couple of good ones. There's one that's a few years old now. They did a really long, like, days-long interview with John Boehner that's worth looking up. It was called John Boehner Unchained, and it was in Politico. <laughs> that sounds wonderful, actually. And it, it was. And, and, and The Unchained, is he's fixing his lawnmower in the front, the main photo right. of the for the article he's fixing is the chain on his lawnmower so that, that and it's, it's him in retirement now and it's the lessons of that caucus or of that house republican caucus are relevant today when he was the the radical who came in who rose to the speakership and then got you know the radical the new radicals came in from behind and made him the establishment and that's, the ha- that's happened all over again but it's a fascinating perspective on how this cycles the other one on a process you, you'll probably like this one the atlantic or the new yorker just did one on Jim McGovern, and I think like Congress's 
the story of tra- Congress's traffic cop and his like three decades on the rules committee and trying to, and, but he's, he's lamenting, of course, it's the Unorkers, so it's pretty hard left, but he's lamenting the process, the deterioration of the process that he's seen through five presidents and seven speakers. And it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good read. I'll give you two, Robert, if I'm allowed to. You're a history uh, buff. I you can. And I've thought a lot about your five questions because I listen to your podcast often, and I've always wondered, how would I answer them? <laughs> so here I am. A guns, germs, and steel would be one. The other one, for anybody in politics, I always recommend All Too Human by George Stephanopoulos. I think it's just a fantastic book where he talks about this balance of idealism and pragmatism and the struggles he had in the Clinton White House and ultimately his departure and kind of his rebirth in the media. So those would be my two. Gun germs, guns, germs, and steel is yeah. a terrific yeah, book. That's if you one. want to understand behavior of human civilizations in the last several decades, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Is that Jared Diamond? I think that's right. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah. I get, so I'll give you two. Those are my two. Andy, if you could witness any event in history, mm. be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? I've got three. But I'm only going to give you one because I got to play. Somehow I need to play by the rules, right? So I'll give you one. I would. So I would. And you know this. I, I would have told you five weeks ago, Yalta. But I've changed my answer officially now. And you changed it for me, Robert. I would want to be at the Casablanca conference. I'd want to be there when the leaders of, of the, the allied leaders get together. And try to figure out what the heck are we going to do? I would January have, 43. I would have loved to have been there to hear that discussion. And, of course, Stalin wasn't there because of he, he had his hands full on the Eastern Front. I would have loved to have been there. It's the emergence of the Americans as the leading Yeah, it, it, that's right. That's the beginning of the, of the American century. Mike? There's a lot of those over history that would be fun to be at. The, the one that's top of mind right now is I'd like to be in the basement of Capitol Hill on January 6th with Mike Pence outside of the limo. <laughs> what, what, what really happened then what was, that, what was that conversation what was the sidebar conversation most importantly last question we'll start with you mike if you could have dinner with anyone living today two hours off the record just to chat whom would you choose two hours off the record just to chat anyone living today Jeez, you can choose anybody didn't have to be politics anyone come back to me i'm i want Andy thought of this ahead of time. Yeah, President Bush. (laughs) Which one? President George W. Bush. President George W. Bush, not H.W. Bush. No. You said living today, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's probably that narrows it down. Yeah. George W. Bush (laughs) is a terrific history person. Yeah. I'd want to. So many questions, so many things I'd want to talk about with him. About what? The war, oh, yeah. just all of it. Oh, yeah, if you, he's if a I, big fan of Genghis Khan. If I, yeah, if I, if yeah, if I think about, if I think about, I was in my twenties, right, mm-hmm. when he was president. There's so much of his administration and what happened in between the first hanging Chad of two thousand of the two thousand election until the invasion invasion of Iraq. There's like a thirty six month period in American history. Call it forty months, right? Where there's the Florida, there's the Florida election recount, there's 9-11, there's the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq. And then I think of everything that happened in that period and the impact it's had on and going to have on, on, on my generation. I'd absolutely want two hours with George W. Bush. I just I've so, and in addition to the history and 
of the growing up. Yeah, the, yeah. I just probably I don't, the second. I think I really team. enjoy that. Yeah, when it's a baseball team, he's mm-hmm. probably the second most frequent answer to that question. Barack Obama is probably still number one, wouldn't you say, Chris? Hmm? Mike, I had an opportunity to meet him once, and I regretted I didn't have more time. Then I tried to bring him back to speak at the Hedricks County Lincoln Day dinner, but he, of course, didn't care about speaking at the Hedricks, coming to the Plainfield uh, Rec Center <laughs> at the park and uh, talking at the Lincoln Day dinner. But it was George Will. It was because, for a lot of reasons. One, he's an avid baseball fan, and so am I. Cubs? White Sox. I'm a South Sider. Yeah. Ah, and he's a Cubs fan, isn't he? Yes. Trade, yeah. de- trade deadline. I don't know if you noticed, the Sox are giving up for this year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, they were the preseason top four, top Stop four in the betting to win the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> what else about him? Uh, just the political perspective. The, the, just the, now that he's, I mean, he's about to, I mean, he's pretty, he's getting pretty old. Yeah. And he's been through how many administrative, I mean, five decades of, early of Republican politics. He's yeah. two, he's, Daniels is 71. I think mm. he might be 67 or 65 from Princeton. So yeah, mm. right around there. He's 82 came on the leaders and legends podcast did you watch it did you listen did. to it he was phenomenal just incredibly gracious and I don't generous know that i've listened to that one i said and i know we're gonna go here in just a second i i saw him at the columbia club pitched it to him first thing i said was mitch daniels has come on twice which i think got his attention but i said i'll ask you about three things baseball history and mitch daniels and he looked right at me he goes okay now i'll do it wow and he was phenomenal Jim, thank you very much. For You're welcome. Us. Nice to see all of you. Yeah, it was good to see you, Jim. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction. How amazing is Paul Okeson? You want to weigh in on that? Great American. Yeah, great guy. Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn. Best hamburger in Indianapolis, by the way. I'm going to settle the debate. <laughs> and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guests have been Michael Bryan, Andy Miller, longtime friends of each other, longtime friends of mine, You've both been very generous in helping me with my career and with your friendship. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Robert. Robert. It's been great to be here. (laughs) Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.